Tonight's reading is from the 19th chapter of Numbers. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water, and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The holy cannot dwell with the unholy. The clean cannot dwell with the unclean. For all of their complexity, the ritual laws and ceremonies of the Old Covenant are based on a rather simple principle. God is holy and clean. Fallen man is unholy and unclean. Whatever is contrary to God is in danger of God. As we've seen these preceding weeks, God rescued his people Israel from Pharaoh and brought them through the Red Sea in order that he might dwell with them and be their God. And if he was going to dwell with his people in the tabernacle, he would need to provide for a means by which the sins of the people could be atoned for and a means by which the uncleanness of the people could be cleansed. In this way, then, his presence in the tabernacle would not be a danger to them, but a blessing. Uncleanness, in this case, that was caused by coming into contact with a dead person, was amongst the strongest of the defilements. This isn't so alien as it might sound at first. If you step in something in the park, you're going to need to take care of that before you go into the house. If you come in contact with a dead body, you're going to need to take care of that before you come into the presence of the Lord. To be cleansed of this specific defilement is what we read about in Numbers 19 just a few moments ago. God instructs Moses and Aaron that a red heifer without blemish or defect would be taken outside the camp and slaughtered. The entire heifer would then be burned with cedarwood, hyssop, and scarlet yarn thrown into the fire. The ashes of the red heifer would then be added to water. Anyone who had touched a dead body would be unclean for seven days. 
On the third and seventh day, they would cleanse themselves with this water and so be rendered clean. If we read this scripture the way our Lord Jesus himself teaches us to read scripture, namely that all of the Old Testament scriptures testify of him, we will see that this rite of the red heifer and the ashes mingled with the water is no different. As the red heifer was without blemish or defect, so our Lord Jesus was without sin. As the red heifer was to be slain outside the camp, so our Lord Jesus was slain outside the camp, outside of Jerusalem. As the blood of the heifer was sprinkled toward the tabernacle, the blood of Jesus is sprinkled upon us, and most specifically upon our lips. As the heifer was burned as a sin offering, so the death of our Lord Jesus is the offering for sin. We see, too, that the cedarwood, hyssop, and scarlet yarn that were thrown into the fire also have their echo in the sacrifice of our Lord. And the wood of the cross, the hyssop with sponge that was put to his lips, and though our sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, and through his death are made so. All our sins are consumed with him on the cross and become as ash, while we who are ash become alive through him. More could be said, but in broadest terms, the red heifer is slain to cleanse the people. And Jesus has been slain to cleanse us. Perhaps even in the red coloring of the heifer, we see a foreshadowing of our Lord, covered in blood from the scourges, nails, and thorns. And what of the ashes being put into the water? The third century church father Cyprian sees this as an image of baptism. The unclean were sprinkled with this water and were made clean. And all the more profoundly are we sprinkled clean in holy baptism. Drawing on St. Paul, the 8th century church father Bede sees the ashes of the heifer mingled with water as a foreshadowing of the passion of Jesus joined to the waters of baptism and poured out upon us to cleanse us. And similarly, our own John Gerhardt sees the image of the red heifer mixed with the water as an image of the blood of Jesus mixed with baptismal water, cleansing us from all our sins and washing us from all defilement. So these things are the reasons why we don't have the rite of the red heifer in the church any longer. What our Lord himself accomplishes on the cross and what he institutes in holy baptism both fulfill and supplant this rite of the old covenant. Yet even today, removed from the rite of the red heifer, we still deeply understand the principle upon which it is founded. Death is contrary to who God is. God is life. Sin is contrary to who God is. God is holy. Uncleanness is contrary to God. God is clean. Whatever is contrary to God is in danger of God. 
we sense this danger ourselves as we enter and approach God here in this sanctuary. Thus, in the divine service, we immediately invoke his holy name, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the name into which we have been baptized, in order that we may approach God and come into his presence, we must come in that holiness and cleanness with which he himself has ordained and given. Only as those who have been baptized into Christ, cleansed by his death in the water, and thus also buried with him, raised with him, clothed in him, our robes washed white in his blood, only in this way can we come into the presence of God without being in danger of God. And immediately after this invocation, we say together, Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. The conceptual framework of holiness and sin is generally much easier for us to grasp. The scriptures define sin for us as anomia, that which is contrary to the law of God, and thus contrary to God's holiness, to God himself. The conceptual framework of clean and unclean certainly has overlap with this, and yet it's also somewhat different. God is life and health and purity and cleanness. There is no uncleanness, no filthiness, no defilement or decay or death in God. As your German grandmother used to say, cleanliness is next to godliness. And she was right. God is not a God of disorder, confusion, messiness, filthiness, or brokenness, nor is he a God of disease, decay, or death. It is sin which brings these things about. And as sin is contrary to God, what sin brings about is contrary to God. Thus, an unclean spirit is a spirit that has alienated itself from God and is contrary to him, sinful, defiled, spiritually diseased, and in a very real sense, dead. An unclean heart is largely the same, a heart that is or has become alienated from God, soiled with sin, filthy, unclean, guilty, unhealthy, unwholesome, and in a very real sense, dead or at least dying. Luther often preached that this, in fact, is the true experience of death. What everyone calls death is, for the Christian, no death at all. It's but a portal and transition, in fact, a kind of new birth. But when we are defiled in the uncleanness of our sins, guilty in our hearts, disordered in our souls, rightly terrified of God and in danger of God, this is the true experience, Luther says, of death. So too, a dirty or unclean conscience is generally speaking a conscience that is at odds with the one who possesses it because the one who possesses it has in some way become dirty, unworthy, and in a very real sense is experiencing death. 
This sheds light also on the true nature of eternal death as well. Eternal death isn't ceasing to be. Eternal death is the experience of being unclean, sinful, dirty, unworthy, unhealthy, unwholesome, terrified by God and thus hating Him without end. The biblical paradigm of clean and unclean also sheds much light on how we experience sin and its effects. How sin, whether it's our own sins or the sins of others, very literally affect our spiritual health and quite frequently our mental health and quite possibly our physical health. This is but one of the dangers of viewing sin such that it is perhaps a legal or moral infraction but not one that has any immediate bearing on the health or well-being of a person as a whole. When this narrow view of sin takes place, the gospel too begins to be understood rather anemically, as if the good news were merely news that legal guilt had been removed and nothing more. Thus also rendering the sacraments a kind of transaction that does little more than pronounce a diseased and dying person to be legally innocent. This results in a distortion of what baptism is and a denial of any real regeneration, growth, spiritual improvement, or increased spiritual health or wholeness. It likewise results in a distortion of the Lord's Supper such that any real temporal or eternal benefit other than legal forgiveness is simply denied. This is why in the pandemic, many Lutherans have had no problem skipping the Lord's Supper for an entire year. If all it does is grant legal forgiveness, and don't I already have that on account of faith? Why do I need the sacrament? But the ancient language of baptismal regeneration of walking in newness of life, of growing into the full stature of Christ, indicates that something much more profound and ontological is taking place through the sacraments. Likewise, the ancient language of the Lord's Supper as bread of immortality speaks of something much deeper and much more holistic taking place in the sacraments. St. Paul wrote that unworthy communion may result in physical weakness, sickness, and even death. Is it so far-fetched to think that Holy Communion, when received worthily, may have a far more holistic impact than we're accustomed to thinking? If the unworthy eating and drinking has holistic negative effect, might the worthy eating and drinking have holistic positive effect. The church fathers thought so. In the Old Covenant, the ashes of the red heifer in the water sprinkled the people and made them clean in God's sight. And God's sight is, in the end, all that is really real and all that really matters. In the New Covenant, the blood of Jesus sprinkles us and cleanses us in God's sight. And again, in God's sight, 
is all that really matters and all that is really real. When the blood of the chalice touches our lips, it has the power to remove all uncleanness. And if uncleanness is removed, then it also bestows spiritual, psychological, and physical blessings as well, as our Lord sees fit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.